0: It's Jennifer Diane Gostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. During the time of this recording, Florence Fisher, who is referenced during the conversation with my next guest, had not made her earthly transition. Florence was an adoptee who spent decades searching for her birth parents and then spent another half century fighting to open adoption records for millions of others. Her passing was on October 1st in Brooklyn. According to the New York Times obituary writer Clay Risen, In an article, Mrs. Fisher, as she preferred to be called, using her birth father's surname, traced her advocacy to a car accident she had in 1969. Though she survived without serious injury, she later said that she could recall the single thought she had the second before impact, I'm going to die and I don't know who I am. Mrs. Fisher testified before state legislatures and appeared on talk shows taking on the large adoption agencies that saw her as a threat to their industry. She joined lawsuits and encouraged others to file their own. And state by state, case by case, she began to see success. Mrs. Fisher wrote a memoir, The Search for Anna Fisher, which was published in 1973. It was one of several similar books to appear during the next decade, including Twice Born in 1975, written by Betty Jean Lifton, another prominent advocate for open records. Both books were of a tremendous value to me. My guests today personally knew Florence Fisher through the decades and said... The impact that Florence had on the adoptee rights movement cannot be overestimated. Florence came along at the right moment and grabbed it, quote-unquote. In this episode, you will hear from Lorraine Dusky, another adoptee rights advocate. Lorraine is a first mother who relinquished or, as she prefers to say, gave up a baby in 1966. On Thursday... October 5th, 2023, Lorraine wrote in her first mother forum, RIP, the fire behind adoption reform, Florence Fisher. Lorraine further wrote, While she, Florence, has long been retired from active work in adoption, she founded the largest adoptee rights organization, Adoptee Rights Liberty Movement, better known as ALMA which at its heyday in the 80s had 50 chapters in cities large and small across America and about 50,000 members. At the time, it was the largest national reunion registry, numbering about 340,000 searching adult adoptees, natural first birth mothers and fathers, siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents and others, hoping to find family members. It operated out of walk-up, couple of rooms in a midtown Manhattan office building, staffed largely by volunteers and Florence, who welcomed all who climbed those stairs. Lorraine Dusky is an award-winning journalist, editor, and author, who prefers to write stories that will make a difference. Her controversial memoir, Birthmark, published in 1979, was the first from a mother to write about the grief of giving up a child to adoption. Lorraine began her career as a newspaper reporter when she was 14, writing for her hometown newspaper. Her goal was always to break out of old-fashioned women's news. Yet, her life and writing has been greatly shaped by the daughter she gave up for adoption, culminating in her recent book, Hole in My Heart. Other books include The Best Companies for Women and Still Unequal, The Shameful Truth About Women and Justice in America, How to Eat Like a Thin Person, and Total Vision. Allow me to introduce you to someone who I had the pleasure of meeting in person over a decade ago and learned at that time of the major contribution she has made to the adoption community. She is among the pioneers in the field of adoption who is still to this day lending her support for open records and transparency in adoption. I could not have been more honored when she reached out to me to be a guest on here. We chatted by phone and email Prior to recording for a reconnection in a beautiful way. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much if not more than I did on a lovely day this past September. It's a day I'll always remember. Lorraine Dusky. I am like so excited to have this conversation with you for so many reasons. First of all, I want to thank you for switching dates to record with me because when you were so generous to send me your book, A Hole in My Heart, Love and Loss in the Fault Lines of Adoption, I knew I wasn't going to finish it by the date that we had scheduled, and I absolutely wanted to finish it, which I did, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I want to thank you first for switching the dates and allowing me (laughs) to finish an extraordinary book that we're going to get into in depth. (laughs) And I think one of the things that came up for me is that your book is the epitome of the power of the pen. You cover so much. It's your journey, but you weave in there some of the most important issues in our community. And as I was preparing for our time together today, I settled on your contribution as a first mother to adoption reform mm-hmm. for over four decades, you know, with the likes of people like Florence Fisher and Betty Jean Lifton and Annette mm-hmm. Barron, like, mm-hmm. I, I know it's an honor and a privilege to have this time with you. And I just, I just appreciate that.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me. So <laughs> I'll take all the compliments and be happy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and before we get started, I know you're in Sag Harbor, New York, mm-hmm. and you were born in Michigan. And you mm-hmm. have been, I think, since a little, well, I know, reading your book, since a little person, very ambitious, and have had a, a stellar career as a journalist. But I, I do feel it's a good place to start for my listeners, my fellow adoptees, to know about the the amazing contributions you've made to adoption reform. Is it okay to start there? Sure. When you relinquished your daughter, and you often say gave her up in Mm -hmm. 1966, you were 22 years old, you knew to some extent the gravity of it, but as the years went on, you knew you had to do something about it, about the laws, and they needed to change, and that you wanted to know your biological daughter was okay and what was going on and that she should know where she came from. And so I'm of the opinion that it was around 1976 that you decided to come out of the closet. My first piece was in
1: 1975, I think, a piece called Yearning in the New York Times. It's a decision that I made slowly because in the beginning I was so in the closet I mean, I quit my job. I in Rochester, which was a on the newspaper there on the Morning Democrat and Chronicle. I was 22 and the only woman uh, working on Metro, uh, which with about 20 other guys. That was a very big break for me to not be shuffled off to a women's department or covering religion or you know something like a woman's kind of thing. And I really didn't ever want to do that. So i quit my job i moved to another city i mean i wasn't with the father i didn't have my parents who lived in michigan and i was in new york state didn't know that this had happened and i mean you could not find a person more deep in the closet than me i remember getting a medical exam for insurance at the in albany where i moved after rochester to work on the newspaper there I had to actually have a physical to get on the insurance policy. And I remember the doctor asking me if I'd ever been pregnant and I just said no. (laughs) And I thought, can he tell? Can he tell? Is there any way he, he knows I'm lying? The decision to come out of the closet did not happen lightly, but I would say my life, my eyes opened, my my heart opened, every, everything changed when I read in the newspaper a piece in the New York Times about Florence Fisher, who was an adoptee, who is an adoptee, who's still alive as of today, as far as I know, but she's, I think, kind of hanging on to life at this point there was this movement called the adoptees liberty movement association and it was adoptees who wanted to know where they came from and who their parents were and what their story was before that i had heard nothing about it i just remember reading it in my uh, living room just as my first marriage was breaking up and i just thought oh my god i'm not the only person out there who wants to know our children now I will say that when I gave my daughter up, and I do use those words, even though that is not what the adoption agencies and people have been schooled to say recently, but I feel like it is is it is my truth. Yes, society was telling me you need to do this, but I, I hate to use the word coerced. I think coerced is when somebody is standing over your head like your parent and you're 16 and you have no choice. I could have changed my life, and I, in the end, didn't. I wasn't strong enough to overcome all of the societal pressures and the pressures of the father to give up my child, and so I proceeded with it. But I remember at the time I was talking to the social worker at the adoption agency in Rochester called North Haven Terrace. They didn't even have adoption in in its name at the time. I mean, when I found out that my daughter was not going to get her original birth records and every all the information I was giving to the social worker about my health history and the father's health history. I did not know initially that she would never be able to have those records. I assumed, because it seemed only to make common sense, that when she was 18 or, let's say, 21, she would have them and there would be no question. I didn't realize that the law that w- made it, uh, my adoption legal in the state of New York would also close off her history. It's like a slave record. It it doesn't it to me it didn't make any sense and I even get excited remembering this moment when this happened and I at that point I argued with the social worker about this. So I think the seeds of my coming out were Planted basically in common human morality that an adopted person should not have their life begin when the stork brought them to the adoption agency.
0: Right.
1: So when that I read this story about the Adoptee's Liberty Movement Association, the first thing I did since I was already freelance writing was figure out I'm going to write a story about this. And I was writing for Cosmopolitan Magazine at the time, among other things, but I sort of pinned a, a a proposal that afternoon. And it wasn't that I was going to come out of the closet. And in fact, I didn't with this piece that I'll get to in a minute. It was just, hey, I'm on top of the issues. Look at this is in the New York Times. Well, let's do a story. And so I did get an assignment to do a story called I Found My Mother. And that as told to story, which I wrote in the first person from a, an adoptee who did who went to great lengths to find her natural mother. And she did. And I went to see Florence Fisher, and I did tell Florence Fisher that very day that I had given up a child for adoption. And Florence said she kind of knew that as soon as we began talking. I mean, I probably was tremulous, and I was still pretty young, and that would have been probably 1973. I mean, I'm not sure of the date right now.
0: Yes, I, I was just taking in everything that you said. And I know that I came to connect I'll say better connect to the adoption community around 2010 and my first conference would mm. be the AAC in Orlando, Florida and I'm not sure if I met you there because I know I have met you at one of the AAC conferences and you know in person but I know when I first got connected back then in Orlando at the conference to so many people the names that kept popping up where Betty Jean lived. And I think she had just passed. Like she, she, yeah, I think she transitioned like right before uh, my coming to be a part of the community. And the other name was Annette Barron. And the other name, Mm -hmm. of course, was Florence Fisher. And so in reading your book and, and your mention of them and the work in New York that was being done, I said, wow, like that's That's pretty big, like to be a part of that movement at that time, because we are talking about the 70s. And so to still be like making major contributions like with your book, I just think is extraordinary. And I I do know that this book has helped me even more. That's one thing I love about doing this podcast and talking to members of the constellation, I, I'm always learning something new. And one of the things that really stood out to me that you wrote that I had never thought about when it comes to the original hmm. birth certificate is that mm-hmm. adoptees, the word unknown for their birth father. Oh, I know. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> I just I mean, sat like I- that from your book, and you say it unnamed, would be so much better for an adoptee's eyes. And and I so agree. And I really appreciate you saying that uh, because when I saw my original birth certificate and I knew my birth mother was pretty sure that she knew who the birth father was. Mm-hmm. And when I saw mm-hmm. unknown, I thought, hmm. And if I had seen unnamed, well, it would have made all the difference in the world. So thank you for that. Uh, no, I know. I,
1: I don't think the the people who did that, who, who chose that word, had any idea of the implication it would leave to adopted people when they came to their birth certificate, because it does make your mother seem like a slut. Right. It could be this guy or it could be that guy. I. It just is. It's pretty horrible. So it really does need to be out there that that is what the state puts down and has nothing to do with anything except that they don't want to name the person. I mean, I can see the legal reasons for not doing that because women then could actually name anybody they felt like, somebody they wanted to be the father or something. It Unnamed would have been so much better than unknown. I mean, because it implies the mother does not know. I, I suppose in some cases is true, but not in the vast majority, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, that was... That was huge for me. There was so much that just made me pause and reflect and think about, of course, my first mother, who was deceased when I found out about her identity. Like a lot of your words made me just feel a little bit more relief because you you're helping. I, I think you're helping adopted people better understand our first parents. Like, I'm thinking of Chapter 11, that we understand and are, I guess, intentional about how human you are. There's
1: well, so let's much. name the chapter.
0: Let's name <laughs> it. Let's name it.
1: It's called Taking a Stand, and it's about the first time I testified in court for an adoptee uh, who wanted her birth certificate.
0: Yes. There is so much in that chapter. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. The first time you took a stand.
1: That was the moment when I had to decide, am I going to stay in the closet or am I going to like really come out? And I I did have to reflect on that once I did this, my life would change. That chapter uh, that we're talking about was co- is called Taking a Stand. And it was for a, a pivotal moment for me because before that, while I had told my first husband when he asked me to marry him so I some women don't do that I mean they just clam clam up or they I mean I have a friend who told her husband the night they got married I mean I mean it's but some women probably I'm assuming keep a secret from their husband as well as the kids that they might later have for me that moment became pivotal because I thought if I stay anonymous. It continues the shame. It's not going to have much of an impact. If I stay anonymous, maybe I'm not really telling the truth. Maybe somebody could hire an actor to play the part of, of a birth mother lying about this. So I had to be, to, to make an impact, To it was my first step towards change, and it was 1974 and this uh woman wanted to get her papers and her identity was it, Spence Chapin and so Spence Chapin had a lawyer against this Bloomberg was mayor of New York and for some reason he sent an attorney as if somehow this was going to you know be the downfall of uh New York City um I don't think I don't remember the attorney but saying anything but he was there But we had a wonderful uh, female attorney on the side of Ann Sharp, who was the person who was trying to open her records. And she said I could be anonymous if I wanted to, but I really knew that would uh, have so much less impact. So I just went forward. They talked about my credentials. I'd written a couple of pieces already about this, had interviewed a lot of people. So you could portray me as an quote expert on birth mothers because there was so little there was nothing done yet really about them you could just do that and then it was then it was time and then i just said no i'm going to use my name and then the lawyer was asked questions like oh do you have any other children and i'm thinking what does that have to do with it but i, I he was trying to make me seem like oh you don't have any other children and that's why you're you know worried about this woman well in fact between 30 and 40% of the women who give up their first child never have another. I didn't know that then. Nobody knew that then. So that is a real fact, fact of life of how giving up a child impacts the women who do it. I also want to know if I was married. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, what in the hell does this have to do with anything? But he was just trying to knock me down. And finally, I just got irritated enough. And I sort of spoke up loudly and said, you don't have someone in your body for nine months and forget. And that shut him up. And he sat down and there were no more questions. First of all, that trial could have been covered by the press. It was not a closed thing. There was no press there, but they could have been. And I thought, I can't. Now I have to tell my family I have to. So I went home to Detroit and told my mother and then told my brothers and everybody was cool with it. Because when I told my mother, I told her that I was going to be very public about this. I was going to write about this, that I was going to. And she said, I think you're doing the right thing, honey. She said, everybody must want to know where they come from. She tried to imagine a world in which people would not know where they came from or who their parents were, good or bad. And she said she just understood that that was not the right place for a person to be in. And so after that, I just I I wrote the piece that was in The New York Times and I was unleashed. And soon after that, I wrote another piece that was in town and country. That was a full blown, long piece about my experience and that begins Ten years ago, I had a child and gave her up for adoption. And that piece landed me on the Today Show. So I really was out of the closet in a major way after that. And there was no turning back. And then after that, I eventually wrote my first memoir called Birthmark, but which ends before I found my daughter. And that was published in 1979.
0: I know on page 134, when you, you write about telling your mother, because she didn't even know at that point, that you had Mm -hmm. had a baby. And I could have just given her a hug uh, after reading your words. If I were adopted, I'd want to know. She says straight away, everybody must want to know where they came from. Don't you think? I can't imagine not knowing or wanting to know. And then you say, no matter how much she and I had once fought when I was younger, and we had furiously, frequently, no matter how I felt, I could not bear the shame of telling her of the pregnancy at the time how much I felt I had let her down no matter what had gone on before she made me proud to be her daughter it's beautiful yeah 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 this chapter yeah it was so powerful for me and then you know one thing that resonates so strongly in your book is the space you give to adoptees like on page 271, when you say, there is a place in the adopted person's heart that no mm. one who has never been there can reach or understand. Even if glossed over as the years spin by, it stays on, a breathing thing that cannot quite die. this just beautiful words, I think, that can resonate for all or most adoptees. Yeah, I have so many... Oh, tabs in your book, because as you share, and I mean, you're so vulnerable and transparent in the telling of your journey, you still make sure that we, the reader, understands what's going on, the times as they are changing. I mean, Illinois changed its adoption law. Uh, Right around 2010, 2011, I was able to request my original birth certificate in 2012 or receive it. I requested it at the end of Mm -hmm. 2011 and received it in 2012. And I just remember New York was fighting so hard, being rejected again and again. And then it finally happens in 2020. And all of us, like we had a party in Illinois for New York, you know. (laughs) yeah right Right. oh man it was so hard
1: i mean until the uh and this happens in many states that until the people who are running the legislatures change if the person that it doesn't happen i mean the whoever i mean in new york we had a democrat running the uh assembly and he would he he's he's in jail now so uh i'm pleased with that but in any event until he was gone. We were never going to get this passed. I mean, one of the legislators who was under him, I talked because the last chapter, the, the second to the last chapter, the penultimate chapter is about the New York uh, law passing. And there's that one legislator who says how bad he felt when the adoptees came and he had to tell them over and over again that he couldn't do anything i mean he got very emotional because he basically was apologizing for the years of stonewalling adoptees and it was only until sheldon silver was gone and a new person was in charge that we got we got this law passed governor cuomo no matter what his other faults were or are he signed the bill he was in support of this i mean we the vote was overwhelming and in favor of the of opening the records in both houses because i feel today that most nearly all legislators have to believe that it's wrong to tell an adopted person you can't have your records i mean they they and and they're just putzing around keeping them closed. I believe that, I mean, you know, I'm 81 right now. I would like to live long enough to see this be a federal statute that no one has a sealed birth record. Yeah. I don't know if I'll live that long, but you know, that's my goal.
0: Yes, I hope so. I hope you do. And if it's okay with you, I just want to read just a little bit more that I think really uplifts the adoptee, and then we'll get into wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about Oh, your...
1: trust me,
0: I'm, in, I'm enjoying you reading. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> Page 405, you write, Adoptees talk about the emotional havoc of reunion, a complex miasma of feelings of abandonment and rejection of what might have been, of what can never be. And soon enough, they need to swim back to their comfort zone on their own familiar beach of people they know of a lifetime of shared experience. And that is related to being uh, in reunion with one of your granddaughters. And, right. and, and I just thought the, the, that your words were really beautifully written there. It resonated with me because I have experienced that as well. So, yeah, mm-hmm. like, let's just get started with wherever you want to start. You want me to read something? Sure.
1: Okay. Well, what I was thinking about when we talked about this morning is something I hadn't read before. My daughter's first birthday after of course after she's given up i'll just start reading it so this is the year my daughter is turning one my daughter's birthday comes and goes that year without me noticing weeks and days before her birthday i remember thinking how am i going to get through the day the actual day is a week after somebody in my life went poof and my consciousness obligingly banishes all thoughts of her to help me cope with my more recent loss a few days later a bright flash of forsythia jolts me hello mommy i am here waiting for you where are you as an aside here i will say that as i was being driven to the hospital when she was born her birthday is April 5th, and it, they were just in full bloom in Rochester, and so the, I just Forsythia always reminds me of my daughter. So whenever I see Forsythia, I think about her. So a few days later, a bright flash of Forsythia jolts me. Hello, Mommy. I'm here waiting for you. Where are you? I visualize her as healthy, strong, vital, and blonde like me, but now I am taken aback because I had so coolly he missed her birthday. It must have been an act of self-preservation, a nod to sanity, for it was necessary to Dull the cutting edge of memory if I were ever going to be able to pick up the pieces of a life gone haywire. I made the choice to survive. Now she sits in the corner of my mind where I do not ruminate daily or daily long, just as my social worker had said. The rash behind my knee is receding. When I recognize how truly sick I had been that first year, I know that I am getting well. But still, she is there, she is always there. You would be surprised how many little blonde girls there are in the world when you are not looking for them. They are everywhere, filling your sightline like a chorus of charming little dolls, reminding, mocking, making you aware of what you are missing, of what you have done. You stare at them, you check out their clothes, absorb their little girl movements and speech. The girl in the coffee shop with her mother. Another at the supermarket, creating a scene at the mall. The daughter of friends, blonde, fine bone, and only a few months older than yours. Are my daughter's parents good to her? How is she? Does she look like that? Is she blonde like me? Does she have my flat feet and Patrick's blue eyes? But it is more than the girls themselves that come at you in full frontal attack. An invitation to a baby shower. A picture of a baby in a magazine. for Forsythia on the window of a flower shop a vague reference to somebody's child or children. My mother asking if I'll come back to Michigan for the extended family's annual reunion, a potluck picnic that would be filled with people to whom my daughter is related. I couldn't go, not without her, the missing link in this family. I don't want to joke with relatives who are sure to ask when I'm getting married or notice that they have stopped asking. Now I am an outsider much more because I moved away. I feel disconnected from everyone except in some weird way, Patrick, my baby's father, and he is gone. I have this secret that makes me different, alien. So that's what life is like for a lot of birth mothers. You just are surrounded by memories,
0: things that remind you all the time of the child you don't have. Yes, and I think we as adoptees, must continue to humanize first mothers. And I, I think you did just a wonderful job in your book of showing us that, reminding us of that. My maternal side knew about me. My brother, who's 22 months younger, says he remembers as young as, I think, 10 years old, being told. And extended family members as well um, knew of my mother's situation in 1964 and so when Whoa. we, yeah when we come to learn more about our stories as adoptees it gives us the opportunity to see our first mothers as human and whatever grief we have about the separation and even anger it's just complicated i've read the girls who went away by Anne fessler and mm-hmm. you'll forget this ever happened by laura Ingel. And each mm-hmm. time the words speak to me, and I know Ann Fessler is not a, a first mother, but the words speak to me as a way to remind me that first mothers are human.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can't walk in your shoes, but I know that there is a anger a lot of times uh, because you just, I mean, I guess you just, you being the adopted world why didn't she keep me what was wrong with me even if if you don't articulate that it happened to the you at a time when there are no words for language you just know that someone is gone that that life is what's wrong you end up i think feeling this deep sense of abandonment that nancy very called the primal wound and and unto me i think she's right on target with that, even though I know some adoptees don't like to call it that or don't like her work because they feel it mm, sort of mars them or puts them in a category uh, for all of their life. But in a way, that you know, being adopted isn't the same as being raised by your own family. I mean, I know that some adoptees have to deal with people telling them, oh, you're so lucky because you're adopted. You know, your adopted parents are such great people. I mean, that must just get sickening to hear. Somebody wrote uh, in the New York Times recently, an adopted person writing about um, Michael Orr, the football player who uh, was in the news recently about uh, his relationship with his adoptive family who didn't really adopt him, which he didn't know. But the salient point that the writer put it down was that I don't want to hear that I'm lucky. If I was lucky, I wouldn't have been adopted in the first place. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand when they say to an adopted person, oh, you're so lucky, your adopted parents are so great. One of the things that I hope comes out of this book, and this is this is the most difficult thing is to reach the mothers, the next mothers who have a difficult time when the child comes back and actually reject reunion and don't feel up to the job of meeting them or welcoming them in the family. I don't think they understand how this second rejection is terrible to do to that person. If the family is a strong family, and if it's, if you tell them with love and ex, try to explain what the the reasons were and what the situation was like, they will accept you and what in your entirety. I mean, I feel that if all the mothers in the in the in the country could tell their families, exhalation of relief, because of the secrets are so bad, they cause harm to both sides.
0: Yes. You write about it in Hole in My Heart, and you also write about it in First Mother Forum. And and I appreciate that you did that because I think it does give a little bit different perspective on what a first mother is going through when that reunion happens. And, and you, you, you spell it out. She may not have told anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the harm in her mind that it would do to so many people If it got out, well,
1: I mean, what harm would it do? I mean, I I was thrilled when I heard you say that your younger brother, who's only twenty two years months younger than you, heard about this when he was ten. I mean, that's the right time to start knowing about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the the longer the secret is kept, the more difficult it is to to get rid of the secret. And I think that a lot of the secrecy today is based on the fact that women. I mean, by secrecy, I mean the women who can't deal with the reunion, the the adoptee coming back, can't tell the other children, all those things. And, I mean and I think it, you know, it probably breaks down into the women who've never told anybody, the women who have told their husbands, but their kids don't know because really the kids are never going to say to her, "Mom, did you ever have any kids that we don't know about?" I mean, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. So she she has to bring up the subject. And so the fact that your mother did that and your brother knew about it when he was 10, that is perfect. That is, he's past the age of reason. He can get it. He can understand that his mother went through a certain pain that he has a sibling out there. He begins to understand the complexities of life rather than waiting until they're older when it becomes more difficult. Not only does she have to tell you this, that I had a child I that you don't know about, then here's the story. She's also admitting at the same time, I have been keeping the secret from you for 20 years or 30 years. The shame of having kept the secret becomes then, what else haven't you told me? Exactly. If you tell this, this child at, at the age of reason or 10 or something like that, that extra thing doesn't come up. I think of it in my own life because I was raised Catholic, I went to Catholic school, I'm going to my first communion and I go to Mass every Sunday with my mother thinking well why isn't my mother going to communion like everybody else and she told me at that point that she had been divorced and that she and my father were married not by a priest and outside the catholic church and i understand at, at, at seven you are old enough if you're to understand the full ramifications of everything it was sad my mother cried i cried but i knew the reality of my mother's life from that moment on it wasn't a secret that she kept beyond the minute I asked the question. But I had a question to ask. Siblings of adopted people do not have a question to, to come with because there's no telling moment where this kind of thing could come up. So the mothers have to bite the bullet. Probably not reaching many here, but the longer you keep the secret, the worse it be the harder it begins to, it, it is to get rid of it.
0: I'm sitting with a story that I know about a former co-worker who goes like over four decades not knowing his biological family and then finding his first mother like online. Mm-hmm. And she is thrilled, right? She is so mm-hmm. thrilled that he has found her. However, she has told no one. She hasn't told a soul. I don't think anybody mm-hmm. knew about him. Mm-hmm. And so she asked him to give her some time. And I think she took a week to tell everybody. I mean, I just love how That's she fantastic. responded to him, right? Yes. And to her family. Beautiful. So she, yeah, she tells her daughters. However, just what you said earlier, one of the daughters says, if you kept this, what else have you kept? She was very unsettled. Like it caused quite a bit of friction and so mm-hmm. when I think of, of how that turned out, and I think eventually everything got to be harmonious, but I can imagine a first mother not wanting to go down that road because they have waited so long to tell no one. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I Yeah. I can see that it's hard. Don't reject your children again is what, all I can say to them. Right. No, no
0: excuse, right? I mean,
1: I I hate to say it that way but that's how the it reject because the the mother feels like i didn't reject the child it was the situation of the whole thing you know there's lots of reasons why people relinquish their children but the child the the a teenager the middle-aged person they've some part of their being registers this as i was abandoned by my my mother, something was wrong with me. I mean, my editor of this book at Grand Canyon Press is also an adoptee, and her birthday was the other day. And she said she has a hard time on her birthday because of her own, she's 78. I don't know if she wants me to tell the world that, but I am right now. But she said she still has these feelings of abandonment.
0: Mm. Well, you know, you asked me a question that I wasn't expecting <laughs> in an email. Uh, But you're a journalist, so I don't know why I didn't expect a question. I was happy to answer it. You asked me, how do you feel about being adopted? And I just want you to know I felt very seen in you asking me that. makes me emotional, as a matter of fact. And I'm not going to read everything that I shared with you as we kind of wrap up here. I'll read towards the end of what I said. Okay. And I said... I wouldn't say I wish I wasn't adopted, but rather I wanted to be allowed to talk about relinquishment, adoption with my parents, and have their support through the years of me wanting to know my original family. All the secrecy under a closed system was unsettling, disempowering, and silenced me for a long time. When you write on page 422, towards the end of the page, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No just government should exert such invasive and degrading control over any group of people, people otherwise equal under the law. Adult adoptees can marry, enlist, vote, get a driver's license, divorce, and in short, do everything the rest of us can as fully functioning adults without anyone else's permission. But what they cannot do is have an unamended copy of their original birth certificate. Not only is this social engineering at its worst, it is immoral and unjust. And I thank you for that. Lorraine, I thank you so much for writing this book. I think it will be for everyone to treasure for decades (laughs) to come. I really believe that. And I wish that for you and, and so, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share? Mm. Uh, mm.
1: You know, uh, these these interviews. Uh, I'm breaking down over I'm here. Sorry. Our emotional... No, no, don't be sorry. I cry a lot. <laughs> you are emotional for me, too. This has been a really great interview. I really great chat with you uh, about uh, these things that are so effing deep in our hearts. You know, uh, I had a friend one time send me an email saying, oh, you know, I had to get over it. and I was like, get over it. Are you crazy? I mean, this is, I, I don't want to wallow in this all the time. I mean, if you knew me, i I. I have a full life. I'm getting a tree cut down, a dead tree in my in front of my house cut down today, and the guys are going to be back here making a lot of noise in a couple of hours. And I have fran- I have a full life, but you know, I do have this daughter I don't have. And as uh, any reader will know, and as many people do know, my daughter was an adoptee suicide, and. She also had epilepsy. I mean, we got into the issues without the personal story, and I'm really glad we did because I think that's more germane to a wide audience and, and can have a a better impact. And so I'm totally appreciative of your thoughtfulness and your, the way you uh, handled this. So uh, I can't think of anything else except, I mean, we can,
0: We'd go on for hours. Well, the pleasure has been mine to be with you for this recording. And I thank you so much for having a conversation with me.
1: Oh, this has been my pleasure completely. Now I'm going to blow my nose when this is over.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great journalists have a very special place in my heart because they are true detectives who want more than a good story, but the truth behind the story. It is not often that I get to hear from a person who was physically there in the thick of things when a state like New York repeatedly denied adoptees access to their original birth certificate. As stated in a Lifestyle article dated April 15, 2023, Dusky channeled her journalistic grit into an activism campaign to fortify the rights of birth parents and adoptees. And she went after the New York state law that prevented adoptees from accessing their OBC. The article goes on to quote Lorraine, I decided the only way to change the law was for people like me to come out of the closet. Quote unquote. Lorraine knew she was not the only person who wanted to know the children They gave birth to Lorraine's life is nothing short of extraordinary from leaving a town in Michigan at an early age to go to the Big Apple to land a dream career in journalism, finding herself pregnant at 22, relinquishing her daughter to adoption and becoming an advocate on fire for adoptees. Just knowing that Lorraine played a part in New York, changing its adoption law is an enormous story of its own. Many adoptees born in New York have expressed to me that they are overjoyed to finally have that simple yet precious piece of paper. Thank you, Lorraine, for having this conversation with me about your loss, searching for your daughter, even more loss after being in reunion with Jane, and being an advocate for those separated from their first family. I too became emotional as you shared some of the most painful parts of your journey, and the triumphs in adoption reform. You being publicly vulnerable and transparent allows adoptees to better understand a first parent's perspective. You are helping adoptees lean into having a level of acceptance about what their first mothers might have wrestled with before, during, and after relinquishment. I am of the belief that it's people like you that can and do get adoption laws changed throughout this country. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.